to the book of Hebrews, we must look at it and pay very close attention to the words on the page to see if what I have to say is not so. I'll be reading chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible word to us, the church of Jesus Christ. Father, as when you originally inspired the author, write this to those Jewish Christians. May that same intention through His choice of words land upon our hearts by Your grace and Your mercy and the work of Your Spirit. And for all of us who are in Christ, bring assurance, and for those who aren't, bring conviction and faith that they too may share in Christ, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Okay. Texts like this need to be read over and over, slowly, clearly think about it so that we don't misinterpret 
what's being said. So, this is where this is leading us today. First, salvation from our sin to be saved by Jesus is an utterly free gift that you cannot deserve. You cannot earn it. That's salvation. There's another precious gift that we call assurance of my salvation or your salvation. Those two things are not the same things. That there are only four kinds of people in this world. First, there are those who are saved. They will be with Christ when they depart their body and they will be resurrected to life eternal. They are actual born-again Christians and yet they struggle with and lack an assurance of their salvation at times. Secondly, there are those who are not saved and they also don't have any assurance that they are. They don't even care. They have no assurance that they are saved and they're not saved. Then there are those, they're, they're saved and they're blessed to be experiencing an assurance of their salvation. That's, that's the place that all true believers want to seek to be, right? And then there's the fourth person who's not saved, but is really sure that they are. And that last one is the most dangerous and deceptive. And one of the goals of the book of Hebrews is to wipe away false assurance and then to cultivate vigilance in real Christians to fight, to persevere in faith, which brings that sense of an assurance of their salvation in Jesus. So, let's go to the text, chapter 3. But we're going to start in the verse before where we ended up last week, verse 6. And notice, and the reason we're doing that is because, see verse 7, begins with the word therefore, which means he's connecting it now to what he just said in verse 6. The second half of verse 6 says, and we are his house if indeed. We hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If is an extremely important theological word. It, it's so important that now the rest of chapter 3 will go on to unpack it, to explain it. To unfold it. That's why verse 7 begins with the word therefore. He's going to apply this and explicate it now from verse 7 on. And it is important because there has been a type of eternal security that has 
been taught in the evangelical church in America for decades now that is unbiblical. And it's allowing many to exist under the delusion that they're going to go to heaven, that their sins are forgiven because they went to the prayer room and repeated a prayer and said, yes, Jesus, come into my heart. And that's it. Or they became a church member. And at the root of this, this false eternal security, because there is true eternal security in Christ, but the root of this, this false one is that it cuts the guts out of the if clauses throughout the New Testament and throughout chapter 3 of Hebrews, where it totally, just don't worry about it. You said a prayer. Therefore, they're powerless now to those people. And that's a deception of Satan. They're irrelevant to you, really. There are millions of people walking this earth that treat those if clauses that way. So our text this morning, it pushes us towards this subject and the issue of assurance of salvation. And that's why we're going to be here for at least a couple of weeks in this passage. So, but let's go back to verse 6 again, slowly work our way. He says, and we, we are His house, we belong to Him, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So notice very carefully, look at it, that this condition here is a condition for being something right now, presently. It does not say you will become God's house if you hold firm to the end. It says we are presently, it's present tense in the Greek. We presently, it's true, we belong to Christ, to, to God or His house if we hold firm to the end. That's what it says. It's true right now. If you hold firm to the end. So if what? That's if you persevere in faith and hope in Christ to the end of your life, then that shows that you are presently, truly born again or in Christ or God's house. You belong to Him. That's what verse 6 says. Holding fast to hope in Christ. It does not make you part of God's house if you go on and do that. It shows that you are God's house. And there's a huge difference. It doesn't put you into Christ. It's the evidence that you are in Christ. You are God's house. In other words, the if clause is what defines the household 
of God. God's people, true Christians, they hope in God. They trust in God. They place their confidence in God. They hold fast to Christ as their boast. In other words, ongoing hope and faith and trust in God, in Christ, is the evidence of belonging to the household of God. So this text is addressing people like me who put initially my first hope in Christ 41 years ago. And it says to me, Joe, as you wake up today, you want assurance? You want assurance of your salvation? Well, then test yourself. Today! If you hear His voice, Joe, don't harden your heart. Do you trust in Him today? It's your boast today. And now the rest of the chapter, beginning with verse 7, supports that, explains it. I want you to jump down. We're going to look at verse 14 now. First, because in verse 14, he confirms that, that this is exactly how the writer is thinking. In verse 14, we have an if clause again, very much like the one in verse 6. Let's read it. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Being a sharer of Christ it is essentially the same thing as sharers in the heavenly calling back in verse 1 we saw last week. And both of them are the same thing in the context of being God's house. In other words, this is what it is to be a true Christian. What is? If. Now, let's notice the exact wording. I'm going to translate it from the Greek, woodenly. For we have become, that's the verb, and then the object of that verb, sharers, modified by that genitive of Christ or in Christ. We've become, have become sharers in Christ. It does not say, if we hold firm to our confidence, then we shall become sharers in Christ. It doesn't say that. Nor does it say, we have become sharers in Christ if we have made a confession of our confidence in Christ. I remember that. I did that back in 1981. doesn't say that here. Nor does it say, we shall remain sharers in Christ if we hold firm to the end. That's not what it says. And nor does it say, we have become sharers in Christ if we have in the past held firm. But rather, the grammar is 
we have become X if we do Y. We have become sharers in Christ if we hold firm to the end. The condition is future. If we hold firm with confidence to the end, but the effect of the condition is something that relates to the past. That's what the text says. Let's do it again from the original. The verb, we have become, is a perfect tense verb in the Greek which is a past tense, but we don't have this tense in English, like in, in, in the sense of the Greek perfect. It means that we have come into a state of being. It has already happened. The perfect tense refers to something that has happened in the past, it began, and then it's with its ongoing effects from then all the way up to this very now moment, present. That's what the perfect tense denotes in Greek. And so what he is saying is that at some point in the past, three minutes ago, or 30 years ago, this happened. You were raised with Christ. You are a sharer of Christ. Christ was in you. You were in Christ. He raised you in heavenly places with Christ. Some point in the past, that happened. We have become sharers in Christ. Christians. And the effects of it remain. You can see them. Those are the ones who persevere in hope, in faith, boast in Christ to the end. An original true faith that started will persevere to the end. The writer is saying that Christians in right now, your present activity going on in your life and in you reveals a past transformation. That's the grammar of the text. Persevering trust and hope in God reveals a past work of God's grace that puts you into Christ. So in other words, if you claim... That in the past, you stumbled over the treasure in the field and you went home and you sold all you had to buy the field. The question is constantly, according to the Hebrew writer preaching to us, okay, today, is he still your treasure? Do you maintain that same confidence and hope and love and, of course, didn't, this is everything. And then the very next thing he says, see it right there in verse 15. He quotes Psalm 95 again. Right after he says what? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so it's clear that the point is not hold firm to your confidence in order to become, in the future, 
a partaker of Christ. That's not what it says. The point is, hold fast your confidence in the midst of trials and wilderness wanderings to show or to prove, to give evidence that you truly at some point in the past have become a partaker of Christ. The passage shows, therefore, that one cannot become a true Christian and then lose their salvation. Everyone who is called by God, who is in Christ, a sharer of Christ, is God's house, they, every one of them, will persevere in faith and hope to the end. And that's assurance. Why is that? Because all of that persevering is part of God's sovereign grace in the person whom He placed in Christ. Or verse 1 of the chapter, the heavenly calling. And to understand this is crucial. For so much of what we're going to see as we continue through the book of, of Hebrews, which will tempt you if you don't read slowly enough and carefully enough, you'll be tempted to think the author is saying, I can be saved and then lose my salvation. And he never says that. So, according to our text, particularly verse 6 and verse 14 here, it would be wrong to conclude if, if we don't persevere in faith to the end, then even though we once were true Christians and actually born again, actually partakers of Christ, nevertheless, we lost it. That, that, you can't get that out of this text if you read it carefully. This verse says the opposite of that. It says we have become perfect tense. Something's true about us that happened and began in the past. That is, sharers of Christ, if we hold firm to the end. And if we don't hold firm to the end, then what that does is give evidence that we have not become Christians truly ever in the past. See, when the Joshua Harrises of the world renounce the true gospel of Jesus Christ, he became a public figure in the superstardom of Christianity, it shows all that time, you can be like that. You can write a couple books, and you can be mentored under C.J. Mahaney and become a pastor of a, of a large church that you inherit in the whole works and never, ever truly have known the Lord Jesus and become a sharer with Him. And therefore, not holding firm to, to our original faith in Christ does not make us lose our salvation. It shows that we we're never truly saved. So, let's follow what we've seen so far. The assurance of salvation for believers is not found in the absence of conditions, but in the promises of God's powerful work to grant us 
perseverance through those conditional clauses in the New Testament. You see, just as God converts, brings new birth, grants the gift that cannot be earned called saving faith into a person, He, he always does it through means. Doesn't He? How are they going to believe in Him of whom they not heard? And how are they going to hear without a preacher? So the means is the gospel needs to come to the sinner to, to, to respond to it. And God works sovereignly through that meaning. It's His choice and He causes new birth, saving faith through the means of the preaching of the gospel. And so also, throughout the Christian life, the way we experience the power of God's Holy Spirit sanctifying us and causing us to persevere in faith is through the means of the Scripture. To say that same thing differently. Through the means of the warnings and the promises laid out in the scripture. I lost my place. Where the heck am I? Yeah. Okay. All right. So what I'm saying is every Christian who's been truly called by the spirit, born again, they will because of God's grace. Take the warning seriously. They will say, that's the word of the Lord. Yes. And that's God's means of propelling them. To hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. And so by the Holy Spirit throughout their lives, they will be coming to repentance again and again and again. They will obey verse 12. Take care. Take precautions. They say, yes, okay, okay. You don't be like that. That would be a bad sign. You wouldn't want to be that, would you? And no true Christian would. So they hear. Okay, now. I almost want to like say, any questions in this? Maybe if we're in a classroom. Now, let's allow the writer now to apply what we've heard to us. I'm going to go back to verse 6, pick up, and I'm going to read. Follow the flow now. Hear the word of the Lord. And we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And therefore... As the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 95, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I Swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Pause. 
So here he goes. He draws it from Psalm 95 and, of course, throughout the books of Moses, the wilderness wanderings, right? Under Moses, in the wilderness, these people had seen God's miraculous sign after sign after sign, ten plagues. They crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They get into the wilderness. The Egyptian armies killed behind them. And instead of their hearts being wowed and softened, it didn't take but a day or three. God's untrustworthy. Why did you bring us out here? Where are we going to eat? They became hard-hearted. And that hard-heartedness led to unbelief and a refusal to trust God's promises to them. And they murmured. Murmured and complained. Day after day. And God cut him off. And he said, you will not enter the promised land. I'm going to wait until you're all dead. And then I'll take those younger people in. His point in writing this to the church is that this is what will happen to any of us church-going people in the church of Jesus Christ on planet earth, the visible church. It will happen to us if, and that's the big if of verse 6 and verse 14. It'll happen if we harden our hearts in the day of trial murmur and complain against God and throw away our confidence and our hope in Jesus and Christ alone. The story of Israel is for us. It is an example for the professing church world throughout the generations. It lovingly warns us, do not treat the grace of God with contempt. Don't presume to treat the grace of the gospel as an escape from misery of slavery in Egypt. But not being satisfied to trust the promises of God and life with God in His presence with you in the wilderness. How many professing Christians have made modern-day evangelicalism that we've produced who want a get-out-of-hell free card but have no heart for God. No love, supernatural Holy Spirit produced love for Jesus when it comes to walking with Him, and fellowshipping with Him, and hating your ongoing sin because He's so precious to you. 
Don't, don't miss the root issue in perseverance. It is not first and foremost outward obedience. It's about the heart. It's a matter of believing. What? What the scripture says. What it promises. It's commands. It's a matter of hoping in God. Look, look at verse 8. That's what he says. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Or verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked. That means I was angered with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. So why did the people not get to enter the promised land? Well, you could say, well, because they sinned and they rebelled and they murmured and are disobedient. And the answer to, is yes, that's, it, that, that's true, totally right. But the point is, all of that saying no comes from somewhere. Comes from the heart. Now, so start now with verse 16 and 18. Watch, the, he's going to unfold the, the quotation now. Here he goes. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell dead in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So yes, disobedience. But look at the next verse, how he ends the chapter. He sums it up. Sums up the disobedience in the whole thing. And so, we see that they were not able to enter because of, and you would expect the word, disobedience. But he doesn't use that. They were not able to enter because of unbelief. Persistent sin and disobedience to God's commands in the face of His mercy and His promises purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the sin of unbelief. Every Christian sins. The true ones don't persist in unrepentant sin. When God says, don't commit adultery. I, I'm living and committing adultery. I know, but you know, you know, you know, you know, we're all human. Just continue doing. Oh no, I love Jesus and believe Jesus. Wait a minute. Jesus said to you, trust me, come unto me. And, and my, see, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You want true joy? You want eternal life, Father, that the joy that I have in you will be in the... Oh, okay, then follow me. Oh, don't do this. And you look at him and you say, I don't trust 
that you have my welfare. For, see, that's a sin of unbelief. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. You're, So think about it. You grow up as a slave in Egypt. You're miraculously set free by God through Moses. You cross the Red Sea on dry ground. You get to the other side and we're thirsty. We're hungry. Why did God bring us over here? We, well, why didn't He just leave us there as slaves? We prefer that. At least we had onions. We had garlic. That's what they did, isn't it? How many Christians over the last 2,000 years in, in horrific situations, nothing like we have ever experienced, though some of us fear we might start to experience it, Coming to Jesus led me to this imprisonment and torture. And they rejoiced. Like the apostles, they rejoiced that they were beaten. They didn't murmur. The treasure is so good. They persevered. Jesus looked at those guys and he told them, you, you brothers and sisters and family members, and then governments and courts, they'll drag you to the, to the courts, they'll drag you to the prison, some they'll put to death, but he who endures to the end will be saved. We as Christians are meant to be warned by the story of the children of Israel in the desert. And thus Turn again and again to trust the Lord more. Why? Because we know that as it was true in Moses' time, so it's true now that many people get a start in the visible congregation of God's people, the church world. They hear that, that, that their sins can be forgiven and they can go escape Egypt or hell. And go to heaven. And they say, oh, that's all you got to do? I'll say that prayer. Okay. I'll become a church member. All right. But then a year later, three years or 18 years later, a big test and wilderness wandering comes. And their dead spiritual bodies fall in the wilderness. And it shows they were never truly God's house. They never were born again. They never knew the Lord. And I have it on good authority that many of them will say one day at the judgment. But Lord Jesus, Jesus, we went to church. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will look at them and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Therefore, because we know, because we, true Christians, 
know that not all who are part of the visible church are part of the true invisible church, God's house. As we walk down here with, with a glass darkly, a very blurry mirror, and our own carrying around of our sinfulness, it causes those who are authentic Christians who are born again to indeed take heed to such warnings and follow hard after Jesus. Every time they wake up in the morning and it can still be called, today because we are those who truly cherish Christ as Kathy read this morning because the love of God personified in the Holy Spirit was placed into our hearts and so we know we know oh, that's, a, that's a terror terrifying Conditioned to find ourselves in like the people in the wilderness, hard-hearted and not interested really in Jesus anymore and in and, and the scripture and prayer and worship and please, oh Lord, help my weakness. We just, no, 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 we just leave it behind. We say, I don't want to be that hard-hearted person. But what might that mean of me? And so, yeah, that's a kind of fear. It's a godly fear. It's the fear that the Apostle Paul commanded in Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear of what? No, not like God's going to smack you. No! Fear of when my sin rises up, that's got to be put down. Oh, Lord, help me. Let me persevere. Let me go because that would be, a, I do fear that. That would be a bad thing if I found out I'm false. And then, of course, Paul then undergirds it because it is God who is at work in you. So every day you wake up and it's today, you go in and say, look at that. Good morning, Lord. Bam. What a sign that you're true that you love Him. And so work of the Spirit that you take the warnings of Scripture seriously. Christians are those who fear finding the fleeting pleasures of sin to be much more attractive to them than the things of the Holy Spirit and of the Word. And so, we, believers, who are sharers in Christ, we hear with all of our hearts the sobering words of verses 12 to 14. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today in order that 
none of you in the visible church may be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. Because we have become sharers in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So dear, true lover of Jesus, he who began that work and raised you and seated you in heavenly places with Christ, he will complete it. On the day of the Lord's return, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty and the power of your sobering words to the church. And these sobering words here in Hebrews 3. Oh, I pray that for every soul in here will not die, will not perish without treasuring those words to them, themselves. Oh, now, Lord, may we, as we approach your table, as those who are baptized believers, allow the truth this passage to ring through your son's blood that purchased all of our justification and our sanctification and our perseverance to the end. In his precious name, amen. Amen. Let us